welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 12. It's always great to be here with you. We have a great lineup for you today, starting off the show with a segment, What's On My Mind, followed by Mailbox Mania, where we're taking a look at the process publication by Isham. And last, we're sitting down and talking with Gene Sargent, discussing unique device identifiers, UDI. It's going to be another great show, so let's get started with What's On My Mind. Today on this segment of What's On My Mind, I want to talk about a concern or question that we have been getting at Isham from sterile processing folks. And then I want to review some of the different viruses and diseases that we deal with in decontamination on a regular basis. So the question is, as sterile processing technicians, do we handle instrumentation and equipment differently in the decontamination area? when it relates to the novel coronavirus COVID-19. Before I answer this question, I want to talk about COVID-19 and some other nasty little bugs that are commonly found in the healthcare setting. Let's start with COVID-19. It has been recently reported that the new coronavirus is stable for hours on surfaces. The virus that causes coronavirus disease or COVID-19 has recently been found to be stable for several hours to days in aerosols and on surfaces. This is according to a new study from the National Institute of Health, NIH, the CDC, UCLA, and Princeton University scientists in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, the scientists found that uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome coronaviruses were detected in aerosols for up to three hours up to 4 hours on copper surfaces, up to 24 hours on cardboard, and detectable for up to 2-3 to three days on plastics and stainless steel. The results provided key information about the stability of this SARS or COVID-19 and suggest that people may acquire the virus through air and through touching contaminated objects. Now with that said, let's look at some other nasty little bugs. We have methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, commonly known as MRSA. An MRSA infection is caused by a type of staph bacteria that has become resistant to many of the antibiotics used to treat ordinary staph infections. Most MRSA infections occur in people who have been hospitalized or in other healthcare settings such as nursing homes and dialysis centers. When it occurs in these settings, it's known as a healthcare-associated MRSA. These infections typically are associated with invasive procedures or devices, such as surgery, intravenous tubing, or artificial joints. MRSA can survive on surfaces like towels, razors, furniture, and athletic equipment for hours, days, even weeks. It can spread to people who touch a contaminated surface, and MRSA can cause infections if it gets into cuts, scrapes, or open wounds. 
Here's some other facts. MRSA can survive, can live up to seven months on dust particles. It can survive up to eight weeks on a mop head, nine weeks on a cotton towel, and 203 days over six months on a blanket. So MRSA can live for quite some time without some sort of intervention. Next, let's look at neurovirus. Neurovirus is another little nasty virus. Neurovirus is a very contagious virus that causes vomiting and diarrhea. People of all ages get infected and sick with norovirus. Norovirus is a troublesome stomach bug because it not only is easy to catch, it's very hard to kill. It lasts for weeks on a countertop, on elevator buttons, and even doorknobs. If somebody doesn't wash their hands thoroughly after going to the bathroom, you can catch it. Norovirus isn't killed with simply hand sanitizer, so you must practice very good hand washing. Norovirus can be spread almost anywhere people are in close contact with one another, whether it's at a daycare, on a cruise ship, or in hospitals. Most people get it through direct contact with somebody who has it or from touching surfaces that have been contaminated with the virus. And last, some information about VRE. Enterococci are bacteria germs that are normally present in human intestines and often found in the environment like soils and water. These bacteria can cause infections. Enterococci bacteria are constantly finding new ways to avoid the effects of antibiotics used to treat the infection they cause. Antibiotic resistance occurs when the germ no longer responds to the antibiotics designed to kill them. If these germs develop resistance to vancomycin, an antibiotic that is used to treat some drug-resistant infections, they become vancomycin-resistant enterococci, which is VRE. Now, how common are these infections? So, to get some perspective, in 2017, VRE caused an estimated 54,500 infections among hospitalized patients and 5,400 estimated deaths in the United States. VRE is spread person to person or by touching a surface touched by someone with VRE. The VRE germ can survive on hard surfaces for five to seven days and on hands for hours. So let's get back to my earlier question. Do we handle instrumentation and equipment differently in decontamination when it comes to the novel coronavirus COVID-19. As you can see from the other examples of viruses and diseases, in sterile processing we deal with and have been dealing with some very nasty bugs for a very long time. COVID-19 is just the new kid on the block. Currently, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, has guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19 and currently there are no changes in the PPE requirements and practices for decontamination. Remember, you should always check regularly with OSHA and the CDC for changes in PPE requirements. But for now, it's business as usual in decontamination. Always remember the basics. Wear your PPE as it was intended. Do not place your mask below your nose make sure it covers your nose and your mouth. 
always wear eye protection. That doesn't mean on your head, like sunglasses you aren't using, but over your eyes for protection. Wear a fluid resistant gown and tie it. Don't let it hang loose. Wear gloves that provide the best protection and covers the cuff of the gown. Don and doff PPE correctly and don't forget those all important hand hygiene moments. When cleaning instrumentation, remember, place the instrument below the water surface for cleaning to prevent aerosolation. When transporting instruments and equipment throughout the hospital, make sure the instruments are in an enclosed leak-proof container, which are then transported in an enclosed cart. Make sure all areas that use instrumentation are pre-treating instruments. If using an enzymatic pre-treated solution, then the enzyme should be hard at work before you pick up the instruments. So it's back to the basics. Review those PPE requirements. Practice good hand hygiene moments. Open those lines of communication with your infection preventionist. Stay up to date with the changes in your area and with the CDC. And treat all instruments as you normally do, like they have those nasty little bugs. Isham Nation, you are important to Isham, and you are the key component in sterile processing that provides for patient safety. Remember, take every precaution possible to protect yourself and your friends and family. So that's going to do it for this segment of What's On My Mind. This week in Mailbox Mania, we're diving back into the March-April 2020 edition of Process Magazine. So the first article is titled, Leak Testing, an Essential Step in Flexible Endoscope Reprocessing and IFU Adherence. So this article states that flexible endoscopes present one of the most challenging reprocessing challenges faced by sterile processing professionals today. With the intricate designs and delicate components, these instruments are difficult to keep in optimal working order. While there are many variations of endoscopes depending on their intended use, they all have one key commonality. Sealed sections should never be exposed to fluid. It is essential that an endoscope remain sealed and that it can be pressurized before each reprocessing. Otherwise, it might never be known whether fluid invasion occurred, a situation that places the patient safety at risk. Endoscope manufacturer's instructions for use those IFUs are one of the best sources for information that note dangers of fluid invasion. Now this lesson references many warnings and cautionary statements from major flexible endoscope manufacturers that demonstrate the importance of leak testing. One such example is caution before proceeding to manual cleaning, always perform a leak test on flexible endoscopes. Leaking flexible endoscopes must not be used in medical procedures as they pose that patient safety risk. So the learning objectives for this are understand the significance and purpose of leak testing flexible endoscopes, discuss different types of leak testing and the time required to conduct them properly, 
and then outline potential human factors and mechanical issues that may influence proper leak testing. So good article. You know, if you uh, are involved in reprocessing endoscopes, you might want to check this one out. Give good information. So the next article, infection prevention for staff when managing manually cleaned items. So this article starts off with, what do Ebola, bubonic plague, bacterial meningitis, and hep C infections all have in common? They are diseases that may spread to healthcare workers through contact with blood or body fluids. Although these serious diseases are caused by infectious agents carried in blood and body fluid, they are not the only infectious material that can come into decontamination area. Other diseases can be spread by feces, typhoid can be spread by urine, and MRSA can be found in the discharge from infected sites. The receiving, sorting, and cleaning areas are hot spots for transmission of infectious material to staff. Manually cleaned items that do not undergo disinfection prior to their handoff to the clean side add to the complexity of exposure. Policies and procedures must take into consideration all points of potential exposure and identify appropriate protective equipment, the PPE. So the learning objectives for this article, one is to identify three forms of infection transmission, identify infection transmission concerns for manually cleaned medical devices, and three, establish policies and procedures to reduce potential exposure of staff when processing manually clean instrumentation. And there also is a, a really good image in this article that shows areas of potential staff exposure to these infection materials uh, within your department. So another good article. Next, we're gonna look at the operating room setup and breakdown, how instrument errors impact surgical cases. A case-ready operating room is one that is properly cleaned and staged with case-specific instrumentation. A case-ready OR helps ensure OR providers have everything they need to deliver exceptional care that positively influences the surgical team, patient, and surgical outcome. A surgical team typically comprises of the surgeon, an OR nurse or circulator, anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist, physician assistant, surgical technologist, and possibly a peri-anesthesia technologist. Now the surgical team members typically follow routine for OR setup and breakdown. They also ensure that the OR is thoroughly cleaned to establish the sterile field and staged with all the instruments and equipment specific to the upcoming surgery. All surgical team members adhere to the principles of asepsis and implement those principles for every surgical procedure to reduce the risk of patients acquiring an SSI, that surgical site infection. Ensuring patient safety in the OR begins before the patient enters the surgical suite and includes attention to all applicable types of preventable errors including instrumentation errors. Today's sterile processing department deals with more diverse instrumentation and more advanced processing equipment than they have in the past. Surgeons, the primary users of these instruments, are increasingly aware of the challenges that often exist with instrument handling, 
and the role of the surgical staff play in the complete reprocessing cycle. However, there is often a gap between what the sterile processing professional knows about the factors and challenges associated with instrument turnaround and what the surgical team members require or demand. Teamwork and effective ongoing communication between the surgical team members and sterile processing professionals are essential. This lesson addresses correct processing for ensuring that an OR is case ready. This lesson also reviews how time restrictions can affect the process of OR breakdown. Now the learning objectives for this one is describe the basic routines for the operating room case setup, discuss the impact that an incomplete or soiled case cart or surgical tray has on case setup. And then last, uh, it's going to review the surgical case breakdown processes and how time restrictions affect these processes. So uh, this is a great article if you want to learn just a little bit more about the operating room and how they do things and how what goes on in the OR you know, affects what happens in sterile processing. So a great article. Um, I suggest you reading that. And then the last one we're going to look at today is turning up the heat on heat sealer quality. So heat sealers are fast, efficient methods of creating tamper-evident seals for sterile packages. Heat sealers have been a part of sterile processing departments for years, and unfortunately, we sometimes take them for granted. In some cases, heat sealers receive little more than a yearly safety check and are used until they malfunction or stop working altogether. Because they appear simple, sterile processing professionals are trained to use them, but are rarely taught more about them. This lesson will examine considerations and good practices for working with heat sealers. So the objectives for this, review requirements for sterile packing used in heat sealers, discuss sterilization pouches designed for heat sealers, review heat sealer basics, and then last, discuss quality assurance testing for heat sealers. So again, uh, four great articles in the Process Magazine that you know I really recommend you uh, look at, brush up on your skills, great information. So with that, that is going to do it for this segment of Mailbox Mania. Today our guest speaker is Gene Sargent. Gene has over 28 years in leadership positions in central service materials and supply chain management. Gene's extensive experience provides a foundation to support healthcare providers in the functions of interim leadership, strategic planning, UDI adoption and implementation, education, assessments and strategy, sterile processing, and OR. Her passion is supporting patient safety in adoption and implementation of unique device identifiers, UDI. She does this by working with providers, suppliers, and solution providers. The effect that adoption and the use of UDI will have on patient safety is a driver that fuels her passion. She has been actively involved with education for many years as a speaker, educator, writer, and editor, and has been actively involved in ISHM and ARM, A-H-R-M-M, for over 25 years. Jean was president of ARM in 2007 and received the George R. Gossett Leadership Award in 2010 
for her contributions to the association and industry. Thank you, Jean, for joining us today and uh, being available to participate in this Isham Nation podcast. So we have a few questions for you. We've been hearing about unique device identifiers, UDI, for some time now. Can you explain the concept of UDI and how it will benefit healthcare? Sure. Um, UDI started the Unique Device Identification Program was congressionally mandated in 2007 that the FDA would come up with a regulation that would indicate to the manufacturers that they would need to place a unique device identifier on every single medical device. The other reasons that the FDA wanted this was to have better adverse event reporting, uh, more efficient and effective recalls. The recall process has been very cumbersome, and we don't always capture all of the products. Fewer medical errors, and one of the reasons why the FDA wanted this as well was to be able to approve products and also follow those same products to see if they truly did work the way that uh, they had been submitted to the FDA. And the FDA would also be able to see what type of patients these specific products work best for. And um, also because it's a global market and it's a secure distribution supply chain. So we have a lot of medical procedures that occur across the United States throughout the year, over a million cardiac catheterizations, 719,000 total knee replacements, 332,000 total hip replacements. It's really important that we know what product each patient receives so if we have any type of a recall, we're able to process that recall and also um, so that we're able to let that patient know what products were used for their total hip or their knee. So that way, when they go back to the hospital, if they need to go back to the hospital for a secondary procedure, there is information that indicates what brand of uh, knee or hip they might have received. That's going to be really important when you've got somebody who has had a, a procedure done in California, and now they live in Florida, so they go to that hospital, and that hospital needs to know what type of knee did they have uh, in because they need to do a revision. So what we're also seeing is that there are registries specifically now with cardiac and then also orthopedic. So in those registries, the hospitals report to the registry indicating the patient's information and what type of, uh, what brand of uh, knee or hip or cardiac catheter that patient received. So it really helps in time savings for the uh, physicians because the physician needs to know this information. How else do they get that? They make phone calls. Then somebody needs to pull that medical record to figure out, okay, what type of uh, product did that patient receive? So this is going to be a true time saver, and it's really going to be helpful to both the patient and the physician in doing their jobs. So the UDI regulation, again, it starts with Congress, and it's really mandating the medical manufacturers to put that unique device identifier on every single product. And the expectation is that in the healthcare environment, we are going to capture that information and send it on eventually to the billing. 
Now, one of the things with the FDA is that they work closely with CMS, who is the Center for Medicare Services, and Medicare reimbursement is very high for many hospitals. It's usually 40 to 70 percent. Well, CMS wants this information, and so um, it hasn't been mandated yet, but it is coming that uh, this information will need to be provided to Medicare for them to reimburse. So that's going to have a significant impact on how the hospitals capture that information. Yes, it certainly will. How will this implementation of UDI impact the average CS department? Sure. So the um, CS departments will need to work closely with the vendors and with the OR on capturing the information so that it's traceable to the patient. So where we really see um, everybody struggling a little bit right now because we don't have good processes in place is that uh, the implant tracking, implants don't actually have the identifier on there. They're not direct marked. So how do we capture that information in CSSPD so that the operating room has that information and they're able to pull that into that patient's medical record? So it's really a culmination of everybody working together on that implant and instrument tracking. So you've got to have supply chain, CS, the OR, IT, risk management should be involved, safety, billing for reimbursement. Get everybody involved in in how is this process going to work for your organization in order to capture the information and have that readily accessible for the OR to pull into the patient's record. So do you have any advice for our listeners of what they can be doing to prepare for UDI? Yeah, I think one of the first things they should be doing is talking to their uh, manufacturer representatives. So whether it's Stryker or Zimmer or Depew, having those conversations and saying, okay, what process do you have in place that you're offering the healthcare organizations to be able to track these implants, because the focus right now is is really on the implantable devices. It will expand out eventually, but right now it is uh, focused on the implantables. So there are different methods that are being used out there. Uh, Some are using a sheet that has all of the uh, devices listed. So you may have a synthes tray with a hundred different screws in there, and that tray is going to have every single one of those products, which will be the device identifier, but what we need to capture is specifically that lot and or serial number. Having that information, again, is really important, but you're going to need to work with your different vendors to find out what, how are they helping us to be able to capture that information. So that's going to be step one. And again, bringing supply chain into it because supply chain should be understanding the impact of all of this and writing into the contracts that the manufacturers are helping the organization to be able to capture that information. Where can we learn more about UDI or really stay up to date? So there are a couple of different uh, places that you can go to. The FDA has their own website, and it's fda.gov slash UDI. And there are um, webcasts on there. There's podcasts there. There's a lot of different information that's on that uh, FDA website. 
There's also a uh, learning UDI community that was put together by the FDA, sponsored by the FDA and several different manufacturers and other associations, including ISHM. But it's housed on the ARM website. So if you go to www.ahrmm for materials management.org and you search for learning UDI community, you will see that a lot of work has been done by several different work groups and white papers have been presented. There's case studies there and you can also get involved and be a member of these different work groups to help to really set the foundation for how we're going to capture this information today and in the future. Thank you so much for taking the time to really explain a little bit about UDI and really inform our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Gene, for speaking with us today about UDI, Unique Device Identifiers. Isham Nation, Episode 12 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE credit for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code UDI. Again, the code for this episode is UDI, Unique Device Identifier. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode is on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.